0: Hey there! Happy 2019. If my voice sounds heavier, it's because my whole body's generally heavier from the gluttony of the holidays of 2018. But but I'm getting it together. It, it, it's on. So um, welcome back to the Own Recovery Science podcast. Today, I've got an awesome interview with Dr. Larry Kahalen, who is out of the University of Miami. He's he's pretty much the guru go-to of anything cardiac rehab, um, kind of helps set up the, the cardiac section for the American Physical Therapy Association and, and their um, advanced fellowship trainings. And so, he's, he was just our guy that whenever we had questions about, is BFR something to pursue in... Patients with heart failure, with cardiovascular diseases, um, I started asking around. Everyone said, you need to speak to Larry. So so we hit it off. Um, we hung out together in Miami, and uh, today's just a great interview. So it's kind of to open your, your minds maybe to other populations that might really get more out of something like blood flow restriction than our typical orthopedic sports medicine folks who who seem to be dominating this this landscape currently so hope you enjoy it and here we go this is the owens recovery science
1: podcast hosted by physical therapist johnny owens
0: all right, and our guest today is a good friend of mine living in the, the beautiful sunshine state of, of Miami. Uh, I'm jealous every time I go down there and and, and visit with with him or, or just hang out in that area. Um, this is Dr. Larry Cahalan. Um He's a PhD, PT at the University of Miami, um, the Miller School of Medicine. And, and if you guys don't know, Miami is, is really Probably the leader or one of the leaders in, in everything um, cardiac rehab and, and cardiovascular conditions um, and, and so when we were really interested in in what do we do in these more compromised patients that, that might have heart failure or hypertension or things like that, these, especially the the aged patient, I started asking around and, and was told you need to reach out to, to dr. Cahala. and so several years ago picked up a, a phone and, and we started talking and kind of hit it off. I, I think first for our affinity for, um, for beer. Um, and, and so that's always the, the binding thing that can bring people together. Um, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, um, uh, anyways, when I started talking, I was like, man, this, this is just amazing stuff. And, and it's something that I, I really want to kind of tie into. So he's a board certified cardiopulmonary specialist. His background is PhD in gerontology. And he, he was at the university of, of Massachusetts up in Boston. So, um, lived in cool two cool places, Boston and then on down to Miami and his research Includes um, studies of exercise testing, exercise training, assessment of functional capacity, as well as testing and training of the respiratory muscles. And and I think that was some of your initial work um, was was looking at um, some of the respiratory muscles and what it can do in in, in these populations. Um, And his training in in PT and gerontology is providing him with the clinical and research skills to better appreciate and understand the effects of aging in older adults with and without various diseases. And his current research interests are focusing on hypoxic environments including acute intermittent hypoxia uh ipc or ischemic preconditioning and bfr training on a variety of physiological measures um in some of these patients that people might have not originally thought something like bfr might be uh, a target so larry welcome man
1: hey thank you it's very very nice to be here and thank you for inviting me to do this
0: yeah And, and, and we already did our little intros together but but happy new year um it's it's off to a a fast start, I know, on both our ends, and it's, it's been almost a, uh, a year, a little less than a year, that we were together in New Orleans presenting the systematic meta-analysis that we did for techniques in orthopedics on BFR with hypertensive individuals, and, and also you you kind of laid out a beautiful um, talk on, on how you think BFR might apply with heart disease and, and these cardiovascular conditions. So, um, this would be maybe a nice recap of that.
1: Thank you. No, I appreciate that. It really was a fun experience. Um,
0: I wish I would have been able to spend more time with you in new Orleans though, man. CSM. Well, (laughs) CSM in New Orleans is a problem for me already. (laughs) (laughs) Me too, you know. Um, But it it really was fun. And I think uh, one of the things that really
1: was nice about that meeting was it did give me a chance to to hear you speak more and to, you know, learn more from you. But then also to share some of my ideas, which really um, it was interesting to discover about. Three months after that presentation, there really had been no publication about the use of BFR in the most compromised heart disease population, those people. With congestive heart failure, right, and um, three months after that particular presentation, a paper did come out uh, out of Japan, and it was done in subjects with heart failure, uh, reduced ejection fraction heart failure, and they've discovered that individuals doing BFR compared to individuals not doing BFR, just doing aerobic exercise training, without BFR. Um, those who did it with BFR had a significant improvement in their oxygen consumption. They also had a an improvement in their anaerobic threshold. It took them longer to become anaerobic. And the, the individuals also had a significant decrease in C-reactive protein and a decrease in BNP, which is uh, B natriuretic peptide. For me, it's a very important peptide. It's a very important measure because... When it's elevated, it indicates that an individual has more severe heart failure and and heart dysfunction. When it decreases like it did in the study, it means that the heart is actually pumping better and possibly even getting more blood to the periphery, which certainly makes sense with the improvement in oxygen consumption as well as the improvement in prolonging, making, uh, taking longer to get to the anaerobic threshold. So I think for me, that started to make me think more about um, the way by which... BFR might affect the endothelium, the muscle itself, but the vasculature within the body, and um, and the way by which then it could possibly improve maximal oxygen consumption um, in healthy people and other people with disease. So um, we looked at the literature, and one of my PhD students, Magno Formiga, uh, helped me put together a meta-analysis, which. Was uh, accepted as a platform presentation for the cardiovascular and pulmonary section, that uh, demonstrated that individuals who are healthy and do aerobic exercise with BFR have a significant improvement in oxygen consumption compared to exercise without BFR. So I think you know there's there's something to this, and I think the major uh, adaptations that occur are within the muscle itself, but then the cardiovasculature within the vessels and the way by which uh, an improvement in oxygen delivery and uptake occurs to improve the oxygen consumption of a person, improving their fitness and overall status.
0: And that's kind of piggybacks on our on our last podcast, where we, we really talked a lot about this this angiogenic response and, and maybe a positive adaptation on, on the endothelium, um, and, and and that's kind of shifting a lot of, of research interests, It sounds like even in the sports world, because um, we're seeing loss of, of, of potentially capillary beds playing a role in, in reduced myogenic stem cell content. And, and so, you know, at first it was it was like, well, it, you know, these people are, are the most compromised and, and they probably, you know, if you ask me, who, who doesn't know a lot about uh, your, your patient population, what's cardiac rehab? It's like, well, it's walking on a treadmill with a bunch of EKG leads on you, you know? Um, it, but then when we start talking, it's like, well, muscle... Seems to be important, and maybe this loss of muscle plays a role in, in cardiovascular disease. And, and I guess it might be controversial, but and it, it's kind of old. But, but can you touch base on like what the muscle hypothesis is?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, the muscle hypothesis of heart failure, its it's been developed by a physician in Britain, uh, Andrew Coates, and he developed this hypothesis that skeletal muscle is a, a key ingredient in the dysfunction of heart failure. And I'd I posit, I, I believe that it really applies to anyone with cardiovascular disease, not just heart failure, and that as an individual's muscle becomes dysfunctional, uh, the person becomes weaker. If they become weaker, they probably have fewer uh, capillaries. They have poor blood flow to that particular muscle and less oxygen uptake, less utilization of substrate, metabolic substrate. And as a result, the person develops an atrophy uh, and they become cachectic. And so... But by improving skeletal muscle, um, it seems to have an effect, as I mentioned with this study that came out of Japan with BFR in heart failure patients, that it seems to really facilitate an improvement, not just within the the skeletal muscle, but within the whole cardiovascular system, and affects um, the, uh, the inflammatory markers, it affects the muscle growth, it affects breathing, it improves ventilation, uh, it decreases, I think, the sympathetic nervous system, and the Uh, excessive um, overdrive that is seen in heart disease and heart failure and overall can improve heart function. So I think the muscle hypothesis of heart failure is a very good example by which I believe we see improvements in cardiovascular function and in particular the pumping of the heart by improving skeletal muscle uh, function size
0: and abilities. And, And so how much do you see with these cardiac patients that Adding muscle or or a resistance training program is recommended, not only from you know just just general knowledge, but also do people feel like it's safe?
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely um, been shown to be safe. It's it's recommended in most of the guidelines from the American Heart Association and other uh, professional organizations. Um, it's uh, something that certainly should be done you know carefully. And done with uh, some particular monitoring, but for the most part, the uh, the effects are very important, uh, and we see just with simple resistance training, um, substantial improvements in cardiovascular function, as well as um, all the things I just mentioned a second ago within the muscle hypothesis of heart failure. But I think the interesting thing about BFR is that um, it provides a a different stimulus to really improve skeletal muscle strength and the hypertrophy necessary, perhaps in this population, uh, to allow them to be more functional. And then I think it also improves uh, in a greater degree, rather than just high-intensity resistance training, the way by which, and we've talked about this, the occlusion but then the reperfusion that can occur, Mm -hmm. whether it's strength and resistance training or aerobic exercise. I have to say, doing this uh, meta analysis and really reading through the all the articles that have been done, there's a, a lot of variety in the way by which BFR is done. Yeah. But I think what seems to, for me in the aerobic sense in the cardiovascular system, having a, a bit of a, an occlusion but then a reperfusion really seems to highlight the way by which uh, BFR can improve the cardiovascular system and I think the
0: heart as well. Right. And, and, and that, that's definitely a different angle than a lot of people think about. Is is the reperfusion effect that happens afterwards, and, and what that reperfusion effect might do um, that, that can be just as beneficial as, as the occlusion period as well. And, and so, I just kind of want to set the stage up for, of where the the problem is here too, because you know. If we talk about BFR, it's primarily, you know, we have doing it in the DOD and the sports world. And, you know, we have, what, eight or nine ACL trials going on now. And, and everything's kind of ortho-based. Um, but this population is, is, is really huge and, and, and needs someone to start looking at it. Um, and, and obviously you guys are. But, I mean, it, it, it get in a, a wider lens of looking at it. You know, the, it's the leading cause of death in men and women. Uh, heart disease is in the U.S., over six hundred thousand deaths annually, and, and if you just say cardiovascular disease, um, kind of a, a big umbrella, and then that's probably a, a kind of a broad stroke. But but eighty four million people are affected by it in the in the U S alone, um, yeah. and so it's it's a giant population. And then it's kind of back where we were when we were looking at BFR and orthopedics. Um, it's I'm sure visit physiologically low level exercise. If you're going to say what's going to put on some muscle um, and what's going to add some strength. It, it's not low-level exercise. It needs to be, you know, a pretty significant load, typically, or or, or things taken to failure. Um, but I imagine your population um, doing traditional eighty percent one RM ACSM guideline type stuff puts a large hemodynamic load on and, and might be a little nervous, nerve wracking for them, and also they might not be able to tolerate it. So BFR seems like a nice alternative. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, and most of the
1: studies do work at a little bit lower intensity um, that. 80%, like you just mentioned. Um, we've done, a couple of my colleagues and I have done some uh, meta-analyses looking at the effects of resistance training on many of the factors I just mentioned in terms of the muscle hypothesis of heart failure. And it, it does seem to be very beneficial in addition to improving skeletal muscle strength and hypertrophy, also in terms of uh, the, the vasculature and improving oxygen uptake. So I think there, there are ways by which we can more safely, maybe even, and improve cardiovascular function more effectively, I think, with BFR using a paradigm that allows for that occlusion and then reperfusion to occur. Um, One of the things I wanted to mention uh, through this meta analysis, and again, this was in Healthy People, but two of the studies that we observed that we found, and it's only two, um, looked at high-intensity exercise, aerobic exercise, with and without BFR. Mm-hmm. And uh, with those two studies, there was no significant change in oxygen consumption uh, compared when you compared the BFR group to the group uh, not using BFR with aerobic exercise at a higher intensity. You know, that's something for us to think about, um, especially as I work with patients with, you know, heart disease, is that a higher intensity is likely going to elicit less of an adaptation, maybe because there's a shorter duration to train at a high intensity, because the the duration of exercise oftentimes in these two studies was 30 seconds to two minutes, and then there was a rest period of 30 seconds or two minutes, uh, and that was repeated over time. Um, But I think also there might be muscle damage, and um, most of the studies that I could find, and maybe you can help correct me, looked at more resistance training and the effects of resistance training um, using BFR and not aerobic exercise upon muscle damage, whether it's, you know, oxidative stress, whether it's uh, muscle damage like uh, creating kinase increase or other things, mm-hmm. there doesn't seem to be much of a, an effect on damaging skeletal muscle with BFR at a low intensity. But at a higher intensity, there, there does seem to be a little bit more of a damaging effect upon skeletal
0: muscle. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, I would agree. And, and so, I think we've all pretty much accepted, um, based on what we've seen so far in the literature and mechanistically, that that with low intensity, there there is not an increase in, in markers of muscle damage, so CK, um, myoglobin leakage, um, and, and even seeing things like reactive oxygen species um, right. aren't are being increased with it. Um, but but definitely, as as you get into these higher intensities, there are there's people looking at it as a protective effect if you can somehow. Work is ischemic preconditioning to, to blunt yeah. the muscle damage, like we see. It, it can yeah. protect the uh, organs, um, but but we definitely haven't dialed into that yet. But but that's a, that's an interesting thing. There is a study with cardiovascular patients, um, heart failure patients, in, in in the UK in Leeds. Um, it's cardiologists. It's doing it over there, and and they're doing high intensity interval training, and then in the breaks, um, they're keeping the, they're putting BFR on. And and seeing if they get habitations by uh, you know I, I guess blocking the metabolites during the breaks, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe a change with something with. With stroke volume, I'm not sure. Right, no, that's a great point you're
1: bringing up. Um, you know, Taylor did that. There was a study by Taylor, if I'm not mistaken, of the author, mm. and they did sprint training, and during the rest periods, they used BFR, and um, they found substantial improvement in oxygen consumption uh, right. in, in that particular study. Um, it's 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 a neat area. I, I think it's it's a really good idea as well to to do the higher intensity, perhaps. And then during the rest periods, possibly use the BFR. Really good idea.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and kind of getting back to the to the point on on stroke volume, you're a, you're a fan of that in your population of of somehow reducing stroke volume. Um, it's a great
1: question. I think you know if we think about the maximal exercise um, that a person might do. We'd like to improve the person's stroke volume, but during submaximal exercise, um, we would like to have a system more efficient and subsequently have a lower stroke volume for a given amount of work after a certain training period. So I, I think, and it's a great question you're asking, um, in this made analysis that, uh, we're presenting at a combined sections meeting that again, um, you know, we didn't know how they'd be accepted by the cardiovascular pulmonary section, but the two abstracts we accepted were accepted not as posters, but as platforms. Yeah. And, uh, they're both on Friday the twenty fifth, I think, of January, uh nine o'clock and nine thirty. Okay. Um so um I think uh, for us, that was a good sign that there is interest in this field of cardiovascular pulmonary care and physical therapy in particular. But I think uh, if we start thinking about the effects of um, improving stroke volume and allowing the person at maximal exercise and maybe even submax exercise to have better blood flow to exercising muscle, I think that'll certainly make the person more efficient and then subsequently allow that person to have uh, less cardiac work and thus a lower stroke stroke volume for that certain submaximal workload.
0: And can you touch base on in the in the past of how you guys would work on that with, with maybe some of your, your breathing or inspiratory work? Yeah, no that's a great question. I th- Think um,
1: for for many of us, um, one of the ways by which we stimulate the respiratory system is to train it and train it at a higher intensity or a modest intensity, forty to sixty to eighty percent of the person's maximal inspiratory pressure. And um, by doing that, in certain populations, healthy people as well as individuals with disease, heart disease and lung disease, we know that it improves um, many aspects of breathing. And um, improves, I think, the cardiovascular system to do the exact same thing that we talked about um, both in healthy and individuals with heart and lung disease, allow them to do exercise with greater efficiency and with a lower respiratory and cardiovascular response. So the stroke volume would be lower. The person's respiratory rate would be lower. Their ventilation hopefully improved. Uh, It would not have to have as fast of a, a respiratory rate nor as much movement of air because the person's a bit more effective and efficient at what they're doing and their tidal volume improves. Very cool. So, so I think you know one of the things that I really was interested in, in doing when I first met you when you were down here uh, and you were educating us about the methods by which BFR could be done, um, I started thinking, wow, if, if a person could possibly make themselves a little ischemic, or I shouldn't say ischemic hypoxic, maybe we can actually facilitate a greater adaptation within the respiratory muscles. And I started thinking, how can I do BFR to the respiratory muscles, which probably is not going to be possible, but I think the work I've been doing more recently now with the Miami Project to cure paralysis, um, where we have individuals breathe in a lower concentration of air, has really given us a chance to look at some interesting things in terms of the respiratory system, improving respiratory performance, but also improving cardiovascular performance, which, again, like BFR, I think is aimed directly at the endothelium and the way by which the vasculature becomes more uh, pliable, adaptable, and um less rigid. And I think, you know, it gives that plasticity that which we talk about mostly for the nervous system to the vascular system as well.
0: Well that's awesome. Very cool stuff, man. So um Getting back to CSM and, and congratulations on, on getting both both picked up as a platform, man. That's cool. I, I fly out Friday morning, so um, I'm going to check my time. Hopefully, I can get over there and, and check it before my flight. But um, it sounds maybe maybe it's just also because this is getting a hot topic across physical therapy. But but your folks are are, are on board. What do you think about your your cardi cardiologists and cardiothoracic surgeons and things like that? Um, to so them and say, "Hey, I want to I want to put these tourniquets on people while we do some resistance exercise or walking." Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think uh, you know it's in
1: some in some institutions in some places. I think you're going to have individuals who will be very very interested in knowing how this might help and maybe a little bit concerned because of the tourniquet. But I think um, there are also others who will um, be a little bit less interested just because of the fact that it is a tourniquet. But I think the meta analysis we put together uh, that was in techniques, um, and I think the way by which it seems to improve um, that hypertensive crisis we were so concerned about and in hypertension seems to maybe even decrease the person's blood pressure, um, I think it it hopefully will give more credibility to the the use of BFR in this population. Um, but I, I can tell you that um, for the hour preceding our talk, uh, and in um, Washington, D.C. uh, There is an hour talk with ischemic preconditioning. A person received a grant from the cardiovascular pulmonary section to look at ischemic preconditioning in heart disease. Mm -hmm. So I think there is definitely a a growing interest in this hypoxic environment, whether it's, again, ischemic preconditioning, um, intermittent hypoxia, or BFR. And I think you know the benefits upon the endothelium, the vasculature, the muscle itself, uh, whether it's a respiratory muscle or a skeletal muscle in the periphery, I think um, it's becoming, and I think a lot because of what you and others have helped us understand can occur um, within this population and others.
0: And, and And I want to touch base on our, our techniques paper here in a minute. But then knowing your patients much better than I do, how do you think? uh their tolerance would be with this. Because I know when we switched from our our warfighters to our veterans with with the total joints, man, it, it was um some hand-wringing of, you know, is this 70 plus year old, you know, gentleman with a total knee gonna gonna tolerate this? Because BFR no matter how you skin it, is is it's hard. Um and it's it's pretty yeah. good work. And we call around to some of the the, the people who've been doing more of the geriatric research. Um and, and they told us, you know, they, they rarely had subjects drop out. And then we found that, man, these, these people loved it. And half the time we couldn't get them freaking off of it. They wanted to do their arms afterwards and their legs. <laughs> what, what do you think in your population?
1: I, I think I would agree with uh, what you just said about the geriatric, geriatric population. I had to use that literature to approach some of the folks here. Yeah. And, um, I think for us, what we have seen is that there seems to be an interest in the fact that people are being attended to very carefully and monitored very carefully. And I think they like that one on one type of attention. And, um, you know, with that particular monitoring that's been uh, taking place, I think that's a very strong uh, thing for these individuals to take to heart. And then once they start. Improvement, which I think is uh, certainly much more rapid than what you would normally find. Yeah. Um, I think that even makes them more interested in yep. continuing, like you just said.
0: Yeah, I remember our first, our, she was an elderly female. Um, and the first thing she said to us after she got done is she said, I haven't felt that in my muscle in, in decades. And, you know, just, just, you know, maybe the muscle activation, maybe feeling lactate and all those metabolites. But, you know, you could see her just, it looked like it, her her head was just beaming like with, with kind of excitement after, after feeling it. So, you, and, and again, I'm, I'm naive to your population. Can you take people who might not understand the way cardiac rehab works or, or if someone has uh, this diagnosis and, and then maybe touch base, I know you did for the American Heart Association um, kind of look at utilization of, of can clinicians help refer patients can you, can you take us through like what the process would be from hey i got diagnosed with this problem now i need rehab and what does rehab look like you know is is it is it always one-on-one and and, and very monitored and it's and, and just take me through that
1: yeah no it's it's, it's a great question um In the the phase um, one and two setting, it's usually more one-on-one, not always. You may have a few subjects, but there is direct monitoring and attention being given to those individuals. And for the most part, the standard cardiac rehabilitation program or pulmonary rehabilitation program, another population that may benefit from this type of training, I believe, um, is that the person either walks on a treadmill, they'll do some stair-stepper type activities, and they'll do that for a certain period of time, oftentimes to tolerance, but then hopefully trying to get them to a 20- or 30-minute period. Um, and that seems to certainly improve uh, functional performance. It improves some of the cardiovascular indices. But I think, um, you know, resistance training has been added more recently to include with the cardiac rehab regime to improve skeletal muscle strength and hypertrophy and give the person the a greater functional capacity. But I think, you know, doing something like BF. Far, a shorter period of time is needed, and I think benefit both with resistance training and aerobic um, shorter periods of time. And I think greater benefit um, within the cardiovascular system is possible. Um, I think certainly needs more investigation, but I, I really believe that the hypotheses that I've came come up with one of our. Uh, abstracts is a hypothetical abstract looking at BFR and heart failure. And again, we end the, the presentation with the study that came out of Japan, but using the muscle hypothesis of heart failure, like I did with our presentation, it really makes sense that for heart disease, if we add resistance and or aerobic exercise with BFR, it likely will facilitate that particular standard or regular cardiac rehab setting and allow the person to have better benefit
0: are, are you guys typically bound by this is a a, a time and in, in weeks based program, you know, so you've been diagnosed with this condition and you come in and this is a four week cardiac rehab or are there certain targets and goals you're looking at either from an EKG perspective or from a strength and hypertrophy function perspective?
1: Um, it, it Usually, it's a time-dependent uh, uh, regime that a person will receive, and after a certain period of time, uh, that person will enter not uh, an, another less monitored uh, setting, which would be like a phase three cardiac rehabilitation setting, where there's still monitoring going on, but less electrocardiogram and um, a little bit more freedom, because the person has already been taught how to do the exercises, and um, you're, you're asking a great question. We've discussed this among our my colleagues in a phase three time setting, you know, should we just allow individuals to come in and use the BFR device without direct monitoring like we had been doing earlier, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I And I I think, you know, if the person's, uh, if they're savvy and they understand what they're doing and they, um, with most systems, I think they can be done um, properly and without uh, any complications occurring. I think that possibly is a way by which uh, a less monitored phase three setting could do any kind of, uh, whether they do or whether they're doing resistance training, which does happen, or something like resistance training with BFR or aerobic exercise.
0: Yeah. And, and I, th- I think kind of piggybacking on that, and, and you and I, I, I think both believe this, that this personalized approach to each individual, um, Really helps us kind of dial this in with laser focus, and, and we're not guessing. So I'm not pumping something up at 200 millimeters of mercury on on Miss Smith, who has a, a smaller limb and maybe less muscle, and and who knows what her her vascular um, you know compromise might be. Versus you know Mr. Smith, who has twice the size limb, and 200 is is much less occlusion on him than it is on her. That that being able to to use these these dopplers, um, ours ours are embedded in the cup to to understand what the pressure is per person especially in your population It, it seems essential
1: yeah yeah no i agree um I, I think I've spoken with you about one of my uh, DPT students um, who has a distinct interest in diabetes because he himself is a, a type 1 diabetic, mm-hmm. and um, he really believes that uh, there's um, a real place for BFR in the diabetic population. Yeah, and um, you know he's actually putting together an IRB right now that hopefully we'll be able to um, initiate sometime in the near future. Uh, and I think, you know, even though it's a contraindication currently, um, like it is with, I think, va- you know, vascular diseases, I think, you know, given and done the right way, it could be a very beneficial thing for the diabetic and or the person with uh, vascular disease.
0: Yeah, no, and, and that's that's this next target population that, that's got a lot of interest right now. Um, and, and, and it, it is. We, it, it's, it's a risk factor just because we don't know um, right. But we do have a. It looks like a pretty large trial that's going to be started in Germany, um, where where they track it nationally. If you're if you're newly diagnosed with diabetes in Germany, they they follow you for ten years, um, and, and we're trying. Looks like we're going to be able to slide in and add this as a as an arm to that Very nice. longitudinal study. So yeah, that that one's got a lot of interest. And and so with what about the ability? So once I know, okay. Larry, you've got heart disease, I'm bringing you in cardiac rehab, We're, we put this cuff on you and I measure you out on, on your limbs and, you know, okay, 180 millimeters of mercury is, is your limb occlusion pressure, I'm going to use a percentage of that, you know, we don't know the exact numbers, but we feel like 60 to 80% in the lower extremity is good to go. We may, we, we'd probably, in the start with your population, you know, start with maybe a little bit of a lower number. Um, we did, yeah. Just for tolerance. But then what do you think of graded increases in pressure? So I'm controlling changes to the heart through the vasculature by, you know, as as little as one millimeter of mercury at a time just by taking a cuff up. What what do you think about manipulating variables like that?
1: I think it's a great idea. I think it's a a really nice way by which I think um, in the patient with heart failure and our heart disease, you know, the the pumping of the heart is what's compromised. And by occluding a limb, uh, either unilaterally or bilaterally, I think you will have a decrease in venous return, and then when you reperfuse, uh, there'll be an increase. But I think that fluctuation, giving the heart a little bit better pumping ability during the occlusion, and then probably even during the reperfusion, um, is something that you could uh, you could test very easily. Doing exactly what you said, trying to find that optimal level uh, to you know for limb occlusion pressure that then would facilitate that particular improvement in cardiovascular, and then hopefully uh, skeletal muscle function.
0: And, and you almost have, and, and you touched on this at CSM a little bit, just a, a sucking of blood out of the heart. Is that at the yeah. reperfusion moment or during the the occlusion? It's a, I, it's a, it's a great question. Um,
1: it's something very similar to something called EECP, Enhanced External Counterpulsation, which is essentially... Um, It's a big blood pressure cuff from the uh, umbilicus all the way down to the ankles on both lower extremities. And this particular uh, device, this big cuff, is synchronized with the electrocardiogram. And when the person, uh, when the heart starts to contract, we actually, just before the heart starts to contract, the pressure within these cuffs releases. So you have a dramatic decrease in pressure within the lower extremity, which really does change its pressure gradient and sucks blood from the ventricle and allows the heart to work more effectively. And I think during that reperfusion phase, uh, whether it's with aerobic exercise or maybe even just at rest with BFR or doing resistance training, you're going to facilitate something like that to a lesser degree, of course. But I think something like that occurring within the, the
0: heart and its pumping ability. And and do patients get symptomatic relief at that moment, or do you see something kind of? Um, Yeah. What
1: What happens? The what the literature has shown is is that people who use these types of pumps, um, they actually have an improvement in their overall heart function. The pumping gets better, and there also seems to be an improvement in their functional status. Now, there's no exercise that's being done; they're just, for the most part, lying down and having this done. uh, Usually. Uh, When they're having this done, it's usually for retractable angina when the person has chest pain that just prevents them from from doing any physical exercise. Mm -hmm. And By doing this training, it actually allows the heart to become more effective and efficient. And I think it also, as we've already mentioned, it improves endothelium in the periphery and allows this person to now have uh, an improvement in their functional abilities, less angina, less chest pain, and they actually can do more activities. So it's, it's, I think, you know, it's not as extreme when we think about the effects of BFR, but I think there's something similar like that, similarly occurring uh, with BFR, especially if you have um, a, a more frequent um, occlusion reperfusion uh, sequence.
0: Interesting. Very cool. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a hardcore IPC almost. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Perfectly. And, and so just to kind of get back to what we always kind of harp on muscle and strength are, are extremely important in, in the elderly population. It's, it's, it's very, very important. And, and along with muscle comes other things like angiogenesis and, and better flow, which for your population, if you have improved fluid flow dynam- dynamics in the limbs, you're, you're taking the load off of the heart. And, right, and, and where, you know, rehab just hasn't put enough emphasis is, We've got this aged population, and, and sarcopenia is is going to probably be a crisis, and that's just the wasting that this seems to naturally occur in a lot of individuals as they get older. It's maybe just a disease of disuse, um, but but then with your population and and many of the others with these comorbidities, is, I never say the word right, cachexia. Um, yeah, probably a better term, which is you know if you are. In these disease states, be it cancer, be it heart failure, your body seems to just start to really lose muscle, and, and that becomes a, a real crisis.
1: Absolutely, and that's that's one reason why um, you know I made the comment that I think even patients with pulmonary disease might benefit from a um, properly uh, applied, provided uh, BFR. Regime, where um, I think we we can improve the skeletal muscle mass and, and decrease the sarcopenic or cachectic state that these individuals get when, especially when they're when they're in their advanced stages of the disease, whether it's heart disease or, or pulmonary disease. Um, but then, just aging, like you said, and, and I think you know I think sarcopenia is a major major problem um, in in. Most elderly individuals, and um, I think you know it's something for us to think about, especially as the the older population starts to live and function. Hopefully, for a longer period of time, uh, to keep them more functional, maybe a little bit more muscle mass, and a little bit better endothelium will allow them to be healthier and, and live a better life.
0: Yeah, and, and I, that's where I think as rehab folks, we need to understand that what what drives muscle hypertrophy, and then find things. The, the get this muscle protein synthetic response um right because if if you are in a downregulated protein synthetic state because you're cachexic or you're sarcopenic or whatever you, let's choose exercises that are that are going to to push the things like the mTOR pathway and, and we, yeah. we just aren't that emphasis is there it's like well let's choose sets and reps and it's like well let's let's choose what has the response to maybe activate this pathway because then it's easy it's like okay, Absolutely. I know you came in, yeah. I know you did this, and and you know what, you better be dialed in on your nutrition now to help support what I just did for you today. Is that is that? I know you probably have like heart disease nutrition kind of talk yeah. to patients. Do y'all y'all look at discussing things like adequate protein intake and what's a safe amount with someone with heart failure? Yeah,
1: no, it's it's a great question. Um, there, I've actually um, participated in. Uh, several research grant, uh, submissions where, um, one of the cardiologists I used to work with, um, he actually <laughs> felt it was critically important to have dietitians involved in the care of, uh, patients admitted for a heart failure exacerbation. And um, so I think there there is a growing interest and a growing need to provide individuals with more information about proper diet. Um, we know that the American Heart Association does that with patients with heart disease and heart failure. But I think um, especially when undertaking more exercise and the way by which we might then use BFR, there's a distinct need to better educate patients about their, um, their diet and protein intake and, and other nutrients and substrates to allow them to have the best bang for their book
0: for sure for sure so let's talk about the techniques in orthopedics paper um, that we did and 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 so one thing you know you get past the initial conversation sometimes with the docs or whatever of okay we're cool not worry about clots but then it's it's what's the hemodynamic load on on these individuals are we making blood pressure shoot through the roof and heart rate shoot through the roof when you when you occlude someone especially during exercise can can you kind of highlight what what we found in that
1: yeah, um, I think, you know, again, there was a limited literature, yeah. um, three to five articles that were included, but I think we looked at the acute and the chronic effect of BFR on blood pressure, systolic, diastolic blood pressure, heart rate as well. And what we found is there were, in all the variables, systolic, diastolic blood pressure, and heart rate, there were no significant acute. Or chronic effects that were detrimental. Um, our, our problems occurred during those particular studies uh, where BFR was applied compared to a control group uh, doing exercise uh, resistance training, but without uh, BFR. Um, and I think um, the changes that occurred were um, were minimal, even during the acute uh, training periods, right. uh, to where we did not find significant effects upon systolic, diastolic blood pressure or the heart rate.
0: Right. And and so, caveat again, it was a limited number of papers, and and like so much of the BFR literature, the the applications seem to vary across the board, and sometimes it's hard to even find out how they actually applied and what occlusion they used. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, at least under occlusion, um, it it seemed like in in that population, it it seems hemodynamically safe, um, which which is beautiful. Right, and these were people who
1: were hypertensive. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, the, the chronic, there were a couple studies that did demonstrate a decrease in blood pressure, and there have been a couple more now since that meta analysis was published that have demonstrated there there seems to be an improvement uh, in hypertensive individuals in their blood pressure so um i I think there's something to this again um i think you know as a person gets older we talk about the hardening of the arteries Mm -hmm. and um, i think if we we, if we do bfr um properly i think um, and or any exercise we're hopefully going to allow for less of that hardening and more plasticity within the vascular system and allow the blood pressure to hopefully be a little bit more resilient and not increase to the levels we might see with resistance training functional task or aerobic exercise
0: yep yep So to kind of segue towards our end here, do you want to discuss any future projects you're looking at um, with BFR? I know we talked about some collaborations.
1: Yeah. um, I think the the most um, interesting is uh, working with this uh, DPT student of mine who's interested in looking at diabetes. And I I think it's really neat that there is this trial and the the tracking mechanism that Germany appears to have for diabetics. But I think um, diabetes, um, for him, uh, it's an important topic. Uh, He's a diabetic. But I think uh, the way by which I believe all the things we've talked about today could possibly improve uh, the diabetic profile um, and allow a person with diabetes diabetes to do a lot better uh, in terms of the way that they're being managed um, and probably even decrease some of the medications or maybe uh, omit the medications that they might be on. Um, Such a major problem. Um, Other than that, I think um, continuing to look at heart failure and uh, try to really understand the best mode of training to get the best uh, bang or our buck, whether it's looking at skeletal muscle strength and hypertrophy or uh, endothelial effects. And um, I think, you know, your comment about looking at and dialing in that that best limb occlusion pressure is something I'd really like to focus on if possible within the next year yeah. um, and uh, try to identify it for at least this heart failure population, which is a growing population as individuals continue to live longer. Um, and uh, we, we want them to Tolerate any kind of activities and exercise that they do, which I think if we can identify the best uh, the best way to do it and the best pressures to use, we can hopefully facilitate um, better cardiovascular and uh, quality of life in these individuals.
0: Yeah, and and I think something too. It seems like utilization is is not where it should be for the, for the amount of diagnosed cases. Um, I'm sure it's just a fraction that actually see rehab, and and one problem is always the, the amount of time it takes um, to do the rehab and to see these adaptive changes. And, and I know the with the lead study, just reading a little bit between the tea leaves, that that's something they're looking at as well as, you know, this the cycling study that Abe did. It, you know, you ride a bike for 45 minutes at low level, there's no VO2 changes, but you ride it for 15 minutes with tourniquets on. Um, and, and they saw significant changes in VO2. And, and if we don't have muscle damage, things like CK and things going up, and, and yep. you have protein synthesis, then it seems like we'd be afar. If it's done right and, and nutrition's right, we, we get significant hypertrophy pretty quick, usually within the first month. And so if we can shorten yeah. those rehab windows for these folks, there, there also might be much better buy-in. Um, and everyone wants to get things done quicker nowadays anyway. So, uh, that's
1: No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, really good point. I think, you know, one of the things that, um, and I think you're right, I think um, you're probably going to find changes um, even earlier with the use of BFR, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned. Um, And the changes that I'm interested in, again, you know, the cardiovascular changes and oxygen consumption. Um, In this made analysis of healthy people, there are a couple of studies that had uh, individuals find significant change after only two weeks of BFR, which, you know, it seems ridiculous, but I think the way by which it was done in one study. It was done twelve times per week, is a reason. But the other way by which they did the training really facilitated those improvements.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and that's that's pretty much what we hear. And that that our first paper we put out a, retro, a retrospective analysis. You know, that first two weeks, and we're looking at, at muscle changes, but it, but it happened in two weeks, um, which was completely different than what we're used to. And these were chronic non responders. So um, hopefully, it happens in your population. I, I think there's a good a good chance. So. We'll, I do too. Cool, yeah. man. Anything else you want to add to this? No, I appreciate you uh, asking me to participate uh, yeah. with you uh,
1: during this podcast. And um, I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing you. Uh, you're giving your presentation, if I'm not mistaken, on on Thursday? Yeah,
0: Friday. I think we're Thursday afternoon. And i I'm, I'm Extremity War warning. conference is before CSM. So I've got a couple earlier in the week, but it'll be at another conference. So, uh, yeah, I'll be. So uh, I know you'll be worried about your talks on Friday, but I'm going to take you out and and make you drink a bunch of beers Thursday night, so you're all relaxed Friday.
1: Perfect, perfect. You know me well, um, and I'll do the same with you on Wednesday
0: can no, talk. No, Actually, no, no. on Thursday, so. Thursday afternoon, <laughs> right before my talk, I'll meet you at lunch. That's that's when I all need. Right. It first. All right, man. Well, great. Right, hey, really good talking to you. Yeah, good talking to you. Let's find a home for that VO2 paper here soon. Sounds good. Perfect. Okay. Thanks, Larry. All right. See ya. Bye. 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 All right, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Larry Cahalan. Um freaking super smart dude. I think he's going to help drive – uh, some, some pretty cool research with all of this and so uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it if you want to find out more about Owens Recovery Science or check out some of our our courses um, we're, we're freaking worldwide now man I can't keep up with how many courses we have going all over the freaking place but um, it's at owensrecoveryscience.com um, we've got our podcasts up there not just ours but ones we've done with other people and blogs and other information um, so, so hit us up and next week uh, we'll be interviewing. It'll probably go up in a couple of weeks uh, talking about some new papers um, that we want to discuss and uh, answering your questions. So if you have a specific question, please send it in to info at com. Uh, if we read your question on the air, you're going to get a sweet Owens Recovery Science Earn Your Deflate t-shirt. Not not the cheap, all cotton ones, man. The, the ones that make you look muscular and, and fit and it's spelled. So thanks again, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon.
1: Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at OwensRecoveryScience.com.